following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. But it's kind of nostalgic being here in the school. You know, I'm a product, for better or worse, of L.A. Unified, and so it's kind of nostalgic to be back in one of the L.A. City schools. Uh, It just brought me back this morning. For some reason, I'm thinking about the fourth grade and Miss Lindleaf's class. And, you know, uh, today we would say Ms. Lindleaf, but when I went to school, it was Miss Lindleaf. She wasn't married, but she was dating, and every time she'd go on a date, she'd debrief it to the fourth grade class, you know, and... Her idea of higher education, I don't, I don't know. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning. It's in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, Luke 13. We're also going to touch on Matthew 7, but going to camp mainly on uh, Luke 13. I'm going to read this to you. Start, we're going to read first from Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus speaking, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now we're going to jump over to the parallel passage in Luke. A lot more depth here. Jesus is talking about the same subject matter. Uh, Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22. And he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? So Jesus is traveling through these cities as he's teaching. What exactly is he teaching? Well, it had to be about the kingdom of God. It wasn't 50 ways to leave your lover or something like that. Uh, but notice, notice what Jesus said at the very start of his earthly ministry, uh, Luke 4.18, and he's quoting Isaiah. And this is Luke 4.18. The very, Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and this is a very, one of the very first things he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So what was Jesus teaching? What was he always teaching? He was always teaching the gospel. Even the healings and the miracles, it was all giving validity to the word that he was teaching. It was all pointing people to the gospel of grace. So after Jesus teaches and preaches the gospel in these various cities, someone says, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? Why would somebody say that? Well, the only reason they would say that is that Jesus is preaching the gospel and very few people are willing to receive it. And I think that's something that is uh, of value to us in in at least two ways. Number one, we, we must learn this universal truth that in fact few will embrace the gospel, most will not, most will refuse it. And second, this is an encouragement to us, is when we present the gospel to friends, neighbors, family members, uh, whoever, that, that very often we get very little response to that. Very few will respond. We need to remember that very few responded to Jesus when he presented the gospel. It's not like we're weird. Well, maybe we are, but you know, it, it's not like we're doing it wrong. We don't know how to really present that gospel. We don't really know how to tell 
what God has done for us. No, we, I think we do a reasonable job of that. The fact is, few will receive it. So we want to be like the farmer. We want to just keep scattering the seed of God, the Word of God, the Gospel of God. And we're going to count on God taking care of that. There, there are going to be a few that will come initially in response to what we say, but, but most of the time we plant a seed. And then the, the, the Bible says we're going to count on God to water that and nurture that and someday bring that 30-fold, 100-fold increase. That may seem like a tall order. You know, you speak the gospel to one person and then through that somehow 30 or 100 people come to Christ. How could that happen? Well, consider Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was a tent evangelist in the early 1900s, uh, traveling the southeastern United States, mainly speaking in small towns. He'd come set up his little tent and, and preach the gospel. Not too many people have heard of Mordecai Ham, but one day uh, he's preaching the gospel as he always did. And and uh, this young man in his 20s came forward, knelt down, received the gospel, received Jesus, and uh, that was Billy Graham. And so, you know, we just want to be faithful in continuing to give out the gospel. We may not see a lot of immediate results, but you just never know how God's going to use it. You might be the one that plants that seed in the heart of uh, Billy Graham of the next generation. You, you just don't know, but we just want to be faithful to continue to give out that gospel. So let's finish our passage here in Luke 13. Verse 24, Jesus speaking, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Excuse me. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, in other words, all nations, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Let's pray, ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this precious truth that you give us here. We just pray that you'd open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray that you anoint the lips of our teacher today. And Lord, we just pray that everything spoken would be from your throne for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before Father's Day, I received a book in the mail from Amazon. The title of the book, The Art of Manliness. The Art of Manliness. Now, I need to make clear, I didn't order this book, and I, I don't know who did. Maybe it's one of you, but, you know, <laughs> how, how are you supposed to, you know, what, is, what does this mean? How do, you, how do you take this exactly, you know? Do I need to learn the art of manliness? You know, am I, am I lacking somehow? What's, what's, what's going on here? And so, you know, something like that happens. We say, what does it mean? What exactly does it mean? And really, that's the question we ask of our text this morning. What exactly does this mean? First thing that we notice is that in this passage, Jesus is focusing on the person, especially in Luke here, he's focusing on the person who thinks they are a believer, who thinks they are in relationship with Jesus Christ, who thinks they're headed to heaven, but Jesus 
says to them, newsflash, you're not headed to heaven, you don't know me, I don't know who you are. But not only that, these ones who are deceived, who think that they know Jesus, it turns out they really don't. Uh, Jesus doesn't say there are few of those. He says there are many of those who think they know Jesus, think they're headed to heaven, but they're, they're dead wrong. Now, we can face some really big disappointments in this life, and, and I wouldn't begin to presume what's gone on in your life recently, but uh, a lot of people have a lot of really difficult stories of things they've gone through in their family or their finances, their health, and so forth. But of all the disappointments that we might experience in this life, I would suggest to you that what Jesus describes here has to be the most colossal disappointment in all the universe in all ages. This idea that you, you, you wake up thinking that you're going to be in heaven and you find out that, in fact, you are not and you will never be. Sobering thought, to say the least. But in light of that, I would urge you to, you know, this morning as we talk about this, not be too quick to dismiss this. Don't have some knee-jerk reaction. Well, this isn't me that Jesus is talking about. You know, before you come to that conclusion, give Jesus a chance here. Let's, let's walk through this together. Let's understand exactly what Jesus is saying before we come to that conclusion, no, it's not me. Because that people in this story appear to have that same idea. So let's not fall on that same trap. And that's not to be uh, demeaning anybody's faith. I don't know your story. I don't know your heart. But I would just say that is what Jesus is saying here, is that many are deceived. And so I think it's a good idea for us to check our hearts as we, or let the Scripture check our hearts as we go through this text today. We're going to start by looking at these two ways or two roads that Jesus speaks about. What do these two roads represent? Well, they're two spiritual paths, spiritual paths. Jesus is saying there are two and only two spiritual paths in this world. There aren't 25,000. There aren't 25. There are only two. One is the narrow way, the narrow road. The other is the broad way. We're going to say the wide road. But where do these roads come from? Well, it all started back in the Garden of Eden God told Adam, Genesis 2.16, of every tree of the garden of the, you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat or you shall goeth to Jenny Craig forever. No, he didn't, he didn't put that part in there. But, but, you know, this was God's path for Adam. He set some clear boundaries for Adam. This was the narrow road that God gave Adam. Satan came along offering an alternative path, a wide road. Satan the serpent said to Eve, don't listen to God. He's so narrow and restrictive. Instead, listen to me. Do what I tell you. But that's not all Satan said. Satan said to Eve, if you do what I tell you, you'll be like God. And, and so something that's important to catch here is that Satan's pitch to Eve at its core was spiritual. Do what I tell you, you'll be more spiritual. You'll be like God. But why would Satan des- desire to offer a spiritual alternative to God? Well, the reason is that above all else, Satan desires to be worshipped. He desires to be worshipped. Isaiah 14, 13 describes the fall of Lucifer or Satan. And notice what Satan says in his heart. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. Satan is saying, I want to sit on my throne there in front of everybody And I want everybody to worship me. That was the sin that got him kicked out of heaven. He desired to be worshipped in the place of God. But once he's kicked out of heaven, that didn't change. 
It's still the same. He still desires to be worshipped in the place of God. So Satan comes to Eve, offering this wide road spiritual alternative to following God. The wide road began in the Garden of Eden, but it didn't end there. In order to try to receive worship, Satan has, throughout the ages, been the founding father of countless false religions, alternative religions. And Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10.20, that when you participate in one of these false religions, you really worship demons. You're really worshiping Satan. He's behind these false religious systems. So Satan, he not only offers a wide road of sin, he also offers a wide road of uh, false religions. And so these two roads represent two spiritual paths, or we could say two worship choices. The narrow road, worship Jesus and him only, or, or the wide road, worship self and worship lots of other things, worship money and success and pleasure and fame and all of those are idols. And so really you're back to the same place. You're worshiping an idol, behind the idol's a demon, you're worshiping Satan. These are all just choices that Satan presents to you to try to get your worship off of God and onto him. Now these two roads, Jesus says, have some important differences. They have some important differences. Now, perhaps you've noticed that when men travel somewhere, they don't feel the need to ask directions. I mean, I I personally think men are born with this male guidance system. It's some kind of instinct. You know, we just kind of know where we're going. We don't need help, at least not in that area. I see some men smiling. Um, but anyway, we feel we've got this male guidance system. It's kind of got things under control. And the last thing we need to do is get some other opinions on, you know, on what we're doing. But anyway, so a few years ago, Carrie and I and the kids were, were in, in an airport in London. And, uh, and we're waiting in this very long line to check into the gate. Now, what they don't do at that airport that they do everywhere else is they don't have a little board at the gate that says, here's where you're going and here's where it leaves. It's just a number. You know, this is the gate number and you wait in this line for hours and you get up and you find out, you know, whatever flight it is. But anyway, so we're, we're standing in this long line. Carrie says, it's getting close to the, you know, departure time. Are you sure we're at the right gate? And I said, baby, mail guidance system. I, I got this handle, you know. So, you know, we're, we're standing there. And just a moment later, announcement comes over the PA and it says, our name party of four, and it was for us, two kids. You know, you're supposed to be a gate number, blah, blah, and, you know, where are you? At this point, Carrie said, I said, just probably a similar name, male guidance system. We've, we've got things under control, you know? Well, then the announcement comes again. At this point, I use what's really the last resort in the male guidance system. I asked somebody, and, and, uh, and then we began to run to the, the correct gate. Now, now, when Carrie tells the story, you know, the, the, the plane is backed away from the gate, and there's this big gap, and we have to run and jump over. It wasn't quite, it was close to that, but not quite. But, but imagine you're driving across the country, and you don't pay any attention to driving directions. You, you might end up on one of those blue roads, you know, those blue roads on the map, those terrible, unpaved roads. It's all bumpy and... You might lose your rock in a transmission, that kind of road. Well, this narrow road that Jesus talks about, it's a difficult road to travel. It's like one of those blue roads. It's not easy on this, on this narrow road. And the word narrow in Greek, it, it refers to affliction, trouble, suffering, distress. It's the word stenos in the Greek, where we get our word stenography, a, a compressed form of writing. And the idea of being on this narrow road is that it restrains us, it restricts us. 
But Jesus says this narrow road leads to life. Jesus is talking about eternal life. And of course, eternal life doesn't just refer to the length of life. It's a, it's a quality of life Jesus is talking about. And, and Jesus just defines what eternal life is. John 17, 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is the experience of knowing God, coming into relationship with Him. That is eternal life. Now, there are a whole lot of byproducts and benefits that come with that relationship. Things like forgiveness of every sin and heaven and blessing and pleasure and joy, all these other things. But that's just a byproduct of knowing God, coming into relationship with Him. So this narrow road, we're going to give it a nickname I'm going to call it the stairway to heaven. And contrary to the song, no, you can't buy it. So Jesus talks about the narrow road. He also talks about this wide road. He says three things about the wide road. Jesus says it's popular, it's populated, and it's permissive. Number one, it's popular. Easy to get on the wide road, easy to stay there, it's fun. Number two, the wide road is populated. Lots of people on it. In fact, he says many. I think the scripture would suggest that from your own experience, you'd probably know. I think most of the people in this world are on that wide road. It's, it's almost everybody, I would say. And number three, this wide road is permissive. There are no limits on your behavior. Do whatever you want, whatever seems good to you. Come up with your own standard of conduct that just suits all your unique weirdness. Right? Haven't we done that in past life? But anyway, the destination of this wide road, destruction, Jesus says. And let's be clear about that. Jesus isn't saying destruction in the sense it's the end of the person. You know, that you die and everything's blank. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because every person Jesus created is eternal. You will live forever. It's just a question of where. This place of destruction Jesus talks about is hell. That is the place. So this wide road, we're going to give it the nickname, the highway to hell. And contrary to bumper stickers and popular culture, there are no parties going on there. There's nothing to party about in hell. So two very different roads leading to two very different destinations. We've got the stairway to heaven, highway to hell. But how do you get onto this narrow road? How do you... How do you start out? How do you get through that narrow gate? How does that, how does that work? It all has to do with these gates. And I'm not talking about you know, these two gates. I'm not talking about Bill and Melinda gates. I mean, they could buy any, any road they want. But we're talking about these two gates here that Jesus describes. They're the key to everything here, the, these two gates. The wide gate is easy to enter. Apart from doing something uh, about it, everybody enters through this wide gate. Everybody will be on that wide road until the day they die if they don't enter the narrow gate. You fail to enter the narrow gate, the default gate is the wide gate. You're going through it. You're going to be on it apart from entering through the narrow gate. So what, what's all this narrow gate all about? Jesus says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. That word gate, same Greek word there in John's gospel is translated door. Jesus says, John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So Jesus is saying he is the narrow gate. He's the only way uh, onto the narrow road. He's the only way to heaven. It's through him. Recall that God commanded Moses to make the tabernacle there in the wilderness. Uh, 
uh, this tent structure that was used for worship. Uh, and uh, God t- told Moses, gave him all the dimensions. You can read about it in the Bible. But if you compute that out, it was a sizable structure, the tabernacle, 11,250 square feet. How many doors did it have? It only had one. It had one narrow door. Now, you guys know this because you're looking at buildings and stuff, but if today you build an 11,000-square-foot building, you had one narrow door, the fire marshal would shut you down. That's illegal. But this was the tabernacle, that one small door. And the point is that even 3,500 years ago, when God commanded that this tabernacle be built, there was but one narrow door if you wanted to come into God's presence. And Pointing, of course, to Jesus, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That door, that gate is narrow for a reason. And when you come into relationship with the living God, you can't bring your baggage, not your pride, not your self-centeredness, not your excuses for your sin. You've got to check it all at the door. You're not going through that door until you admit that your sin is it's your fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not God's fault. Oh, he made me this way. Yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not going to bring any of that through that narrow gate. You can't get through that door, that narrow gate, unless you lay down all of your egocentric ways, depend entirely on Jesus. Jesus said this, unless you can become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What's he mean? A little child is able to completely depend on someone else. That's the attitude required to enter through this narrow gate. Jesus also said, if any man desires to come after me, pick up your cross and follow me. Here's the point to all of that. Your flesh, my flesh, it's been our master from the time we're born until the time we surrender to Christ. It's running things. I don't know if you've noticed that, but your, your flesh is in control. But you can't get through the narrow gate until Jesus is master. You can't walk through that narrow gate if if your flesh is still your master. So the desires of your flesh, my flesh, have to be laid down. They have to be crucified. There's no other way to forgiveness. There's no other way to relationship with God. There's no other way to heaven. Now next notice, Jesus says there's a timing to getting through this narrow gate. Did you ever get a coupon in the mail or off the web? And almost always they've got a little expiration date on it. For me, I don't know if I'm just late opening mail or something, but you know, I look at it, it expires like four minutes, you know, you don't have much time. But, but these coupons, they have an expiration date. But do you realize this offer of salvation has an expiration date? Do you realize that? That's what Jesus is saying here. There will come a time when it'll be too late to redeem that coupon. It'll be too late to enter through that narrow gate. Jesus says there will come a day when God shuts the narrow gate. At that point, The season of salvation is over. It's ended. If you have not prior to that time come through that narrow gate, you will never be able to come into relationship with God, be forgiven of your sin, be allowed to go to heaven. And tragically, you would spend all of eternity in torment. The day will come when either he shuts that gate universally for everyone or he shuts it for you individually, meaning you die. There's no salvation after death. The Bible doesn't teach that. Salvation has to happen prior to your death. So that gate will be shut at some point in time. Now, now some years ago, a woman from our church told me her father was on hospice. And I asked her, I said, he was in his, like, maybe mid-60s. He wasn't that old. But anyway, so I, I, I said, does he know the Lord? And she said, no, he's an avowed atheist. 
I said, well, can I see him? So she asked him, and he said, no, no way I want to see that guy. So, but, but some days went by, and I knew he was getting near the end. I asked her again, I said, look, could I just show up at the house? And she said, well, I, it couldn't hurt. So I, I stopped off to buy some flowers, and up to that point in my life, I had never bought sunflowers, but that day I thought, I need to buy sunflowers. So I got sunflowers, and, and I, I show up at the house, I knock on the door, the wife answers, she takes me to the back bedroom, this guy's laying in bed dying, and, and, uh, but he was still coherent, he was still alert, he was still able to talk and all that, and, and uh, so it, it turned out the, uh, the sunflowers were an icebreaker. Because he loved sunflowers. He grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania with just acres of, of sunflower plants. And so this was nostalgic to him. And it kind of got him talking about his life. And he started to tell me about uh, all the years that he spent in Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. And if you don't know the history of that, you know, don't go look it up on the web. Um, but anyway, he goes into all this unedifying detail of everything he did with these ladies and everything he did with these drugs and all this stuff that, you know, you wish you'd never heard and you didn't need to hear. And, but anyway, he's going into all this stuff. But here's the thing. He was very proud of this. He's very proud of all these things he did. And uh, the Bible calls that glorying in your shame. You're proud of what you should be ashamed of. And it's an evidence of hardness of heart when we see that. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I told him that I had some of those things in my past too, and, uh, but when I mentioned the name of Jesus, it was like I poured scalding water on his flesh. He let out a scream. He said, get out of my house. I mean, it, there was just no, the conversation had ended at this point. And he died a few days later. Well, this memory haunts me. I mean, here's a guy just days away from standing before the God who made him and loves him and hung on a cross for him, and yet he's violently opposed to him. He hates him. Hates Jesus. Can't even stand the mention of his name. People on this wide road fall into two categories. They're either hostile to the gospel like this man, or they're indifferent the gospel. And, and it's the indifferent ones that Jesus is talking about here in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, when they die and realize the door to heaven is shut for them, they will begin to say, Lord, Lord, open the door. Interesting, they're using the word Lord there. That means master, doesn't it? Has he ever been their master? No. These folks in the wide road tell Jesus they took communion a few times. That's one way to interpret we ate and drank in your presence. There's other ways, but let's say that for the moment. They even heard God's word taught. They say to him, you taught in our streets. Literally in the Greek, you taught on the wide road where we live. Same word. But notice these things. Taking communion, attending church. Good things. Listening to Bible teaching, all good things. But those things by themselves do not provide entry to the narrow gate. Jesus has one final word to these people. Go away. Now there's a time when Jesus says, come. And you know, if you haven't surrendered to him or haven't surrendered fully to him, his word to you today is calm. Receive my forgiveness. Experience my love. Have my blessing in your life. You've been missing out. Come on. I want you in heaven. I want you on my team. I want you part of my kingdom. His word has come to you. But there will be a day when he no longer says come. He says go. Jesus says there will be weeping, better translation, wailing, gnashing of teeth, literally growling and torment. You ever been in a hospital and there's somebody in another room somewhere who's just crying out in agony? You know, hospitals hate that. It's bad for business, you know. But, 
But there's somebody just screaming because they're in such pain. That's what hell's going to be like. The screaming can never stop. And Jesus says these people, they're going to be weeping and growling and because they see everybody else coming into the kingdom of God and they know that they're forever shut out. They're forever on the outside. The passage concludes by Jesus saying, the last will be first and the first will be last. What does that mean? It means that there, there are those who appear to be insiders in the kingdom of God that in fact are outsiders and, and the other way around. There are some that would look to be outsiders that are really insiders. But I want to give you a couple examples from the gospel so you can see what this looks like because I, I think it's far too important to just gloss over this. And, and first, let's talk about the Good Samaritan. Jesus told this story of a traveler who was beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead on the streets of Pacoima. No, actually, he didn't say Pacoima. I just, maybe I shouldn't. But anyway, so the guy's left on the side of the road, it, it said. And along comes insider number one, a priest. Now, if this guy, half dead guy still got an eye open, he's going, oh, a priest. You know, one of God's people called by God. Oh, I'm in good shape now. He'll take care of me. No, he doesn't. He sees the guy there. He crosses over the other side of the street and takes off. And then along comes insider number two, a Levite, one of God's best, those that are in charge of all things related to worship. Well, surely this guy's going to show the love of God to an injured man. No, same thing. Nothing to do with this guy. Takes off. Then along comes an outsider, a Samaritan. Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans. It's important you understand why, not to gross you out, but the Samaritans were descendants of the intermarriage between the Jews and the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bitter enemies of the Jews. They committed just unspeakable atrocities in, their, in, in, in attacking cities of the Jews and so forth. Just to give you one, not to gross you out, but what they would do is they would capture a city and then skin the people alive and paper the walls of the city with the skins of the people. And this is the kind of thing they did. History records, not just the Bible, but history records entire towns committing suicide when they're being attacked by the Assyrians. They don't want to fall into the hands of the Assyrians. So the Jews hated the Assyrians for everything they were doing to the people. Who knows, maybe it was their, their, their family members got massacred or tortured or killed. You know, so they, they, they hate these people. And, and, and then they intermarry uh, with the Jews, and they felt these people that intermarried were traitors. How could they, how could they intermarry with our, these enemies that have done these horrible things? And, and so that this hatred went down the generation, and so these, the, these Samaritans were the descendants of these unions between Jew and, and Assyrian. And so if anybody was considered an outsider in the kingdom of God, it was a Samaritan. They can't possibly obtain God's favor because of, not, not necessarily what they've done, but this generational thing. Clearly that's not how God works, but that's how they saw it. And so they thought, you know, Samaritan, that's the last. So Jesus is telling this story about, you know, along comes the, the priest and the Levite. They won't have anything to do with the injured guy. Along comes the Samaritan and he stops and dresses the man's wounds. He takes him over to the Motel 6. Probably, cheap, probably faster than getting in the yard. Cheaper, too. Uh, anyway, so he, he takes him there. He gives him, the, the guy at the, at the desk, hundreds of dollars. He says, take care of this guy till I get back. This is his own money. He doesn't even know this guy. And, and, and the moral of the story is that often the one who appears to be the outsider, like this Samaritan, is really an insider. He's got the heart of God. He loves God. And, and these others, these, the priest and the Levite, by their actions, prove that they lack the love of God. How could they know God? First John says, God is love. If you know him, you're going to love people. So 
It's, that would be a big indication that maybe you don't know God if you're not showing his love. That was the first story. The second story was the Pharisee and the tax collector <clears throat> praying at the temple. Now, the Pharisee was probably considered the most spiritual person in Israel. They tithed, they fasted, they fastidiously obeyed the smallest regulation of God and all the regulations that the rabbis had laid down. And I mean, these guys are 24-7. They're just obeying every little thing that they think uh, pleases God. They were considered the ultimate insiders in the kingdom of God. Tax collectors, on the other hand, well, they ripped off God's people and they helped Rome oppress them. And so these were like the, the worst, most distant outsider you could ever get. So the Pharisee goes to the temple to, and, the, and, and he prays. He sees this, this tax collector and he prays. Thank God, I'm not like this guy. What kind of prayer is that? You know, but this is the prayer he prays. And the tax collector won't even write, rise his eyes up to God. He just says, be merciful to to me, God, a sinner. But Jesus says the tax collector left the temple justified, meaning right with God, when the Pharisee didn't. And so Jesus is saying, look, the tax collector is the insider, the Pharisees, the outsider. So coming into relationship with God doesn't have to, you know, it has to do with the, with the heart, not the external works, not praying, fasting, ironing, Pastor Brian's shirts. You know, it's not about these. External things we do. But, but Christy, I'm sure there's a reward for that. You know. it's, a, it's a pressing reward. But uh, anyway, so we, we strive to enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says. And the all-important question before us today is, have we done that? Have we entered in through Jesus Christ? That, that's the question before us. No one in history has stumbled into the kingdom of God. No one has wandered through the narrow gate by accident. That's impossible. It's also impossible to get through that narrow gate just because you were born into a religious family or, or because you were raised in a certain faith. Those things don't provide entry through the narrow gate. No, Jesus says strive to enter through the narrow gate. Greek word is agonizomai, where we get the word agony. It, it speaks of conscious, purposeful, intense effort. Have you entered through the narrow gate? That's the question today. Jesus says that many... Not few, but many think they have entered, but they have not. Could it be that, and not to say this in a confrontational way, but could it be that you are in that place? You think you've entered, but as you, as you read about these things in the text, as you see these things, you, you, you know, is it possible you might think yourself inside the kingdom, but in fact, you're really outside? Could that be? Well, how do you know for sure? How do you know for sure that you've entered through that narrow gate? The Bible is clear that if there's salvation, there's also transformation. And this is difficult to say, difficult to hear, but if in your life there's been no transformation, there's a pretty good chance there's been no salvation because the two go hand in hand. If you think and speak and act largely like you always have, then there's been no, no transformation. And, and here's just some evidence of transformation, some some scriptures from 1 John that <clears throat> deal with this. I'm going to walk through four of these just to give you this flavor. Uh, one evidence of transformation is that you confess your sin to God. 1 John 1 1.8. You know, if in your pride you seldom or ever are willing to admit your sin, confess your sin to God, well, there, there's some question. Have you been transformed? 
Another evidence of transformation is do you obey God? <clears throat> Excuse me, 1 John 2, 4. If you can willfully do something that God's word says not to do, have you been transformed? Do you belong to him? Another evidence is that we love people, 1 John 2, 9. If there are people you refuse to forgive, refuse to love, refuse to serve, does that sound like transformation? Um, the last one, evidence of transformation, we practice righteousness rather than practicing sin, 1 John 3, 6. An example, if you were partaking of sexual relations outside of marriage, you know, there's definitely a question mark there. Now, not that we don't slip into sin, but, it, but if we make a habit of something that God says not to, eh, you know, you're in that place of, I don't think I could, I don't think Brian could, I didn't even go, Oh, you're in. I, the, it's just the scripture is saying, eh, you know, it's, you're not in the place you should be. The point being, the truly redeemed life <clears throat> is a transformed life. <clears throat> We're going to look at an example of that. <clears throat> Excuse me, Zacchaeus the tax collector. Now, in the first century, Rome sold franchises to tax collectors. I don't know if they still do it, but McDonald's used to sell franchises. You could buy a franchise to open a McDonald's restaurant. But anyway, in, in, in the first century, Rome would sell these franchises. You'd You'd have the right to collect taxes in a certain area. And you could not only collect what Rome told you, but you could collect everything above that that you possibly could, and you get to keep that. And you got to use the power of the Roman army to uh, make this happen. And so a lot of these tax collectors became very rich through thievery and extortion. They could say to somebody, hey, you don't give me your house, I'm going to have you arrested. I mean, it just was this bizarre uh, thievery that was sanctioned by Rome. Anyway... Zacchaeus was one of these tax collectors, and he's very rich. How do you get rich? Probably through some things that shouldn't have been done. So Luke 19, <clears throat> 5, excuse me, <clears throat> gives us the account of Zacchaeus. It says, and when Jesus, Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He was up in a tree. You might remember the children's story. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> My water bottle was running out, so I filled it in the uh, lavatory, so there's kind of a mix of Evian and Tapion, you know, it's, I don't know. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so uh, Jesus came to the place and looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when they, the Pharisees, I assume, saw it, they complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest <clears throat> of a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. I'm going to give him four times as much as I stole. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Notice the transformation. Zacchaeus once craved riches, so much so that he would steal to get them. He didn't care about his immorality. But now that he gets to know Jesus, uh, you know, he gives away his money. He wants to set right any immorality that exists in his life. He wants to clean up any sin. That's true transformation. Jesus sees it, and he pronounces this guy saved. Salvation has come to this house. When I became a Christian in 1988, I still had pornographic magazines in my house. And it was a little while later, I thought, I can't have that stuff. I need to throw it away. But this is the, the process of transformation. Is you, What you once loved or valued, you now hate. You now begin to line up with God. And you go, no, wait a minute. I can't do that anymore. So if somebody says, oh, I love Jesus, but I'm doing this or I'm doing that, which is clearly something God says not to do in his word, then those two things don't add up. If you love Jesus, you're not going to love sin. You're not going to love diso disobeying 
disobeying Jesus. Not that you won't sometimes slip into sin. Not, and we're not going to live perfect life. But you know, what the Bible warns us against is the habit patterns of sin. Those are the things we've really got to watch because we've come hooked in and pretty soon we don't even see it as sin anymore. Okay, so our final story that we're going to talk about, Luke records the encounter with a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I'm going to read that to you. And, and this, uh, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. So we're going to pick this up, Luke uh, 7, 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, polite way of saying she was a prostitute, woman who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This was very valuable perfumed oil. And that time, instead of savings accounts, a lot of people would have these flasks of perfume that they would buy and they'd bury them in the ground. It was just kind of a way of saving money or whatever. And this flask of oil could be worth ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, a fair amount of money. Okay, so she takes this flask of fragrant oil. She began to stand at his feet weep behind him weeping. And this is the Bible in Greek would say a downpour of tears. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her ha- with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who, who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Jesus speaking says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owned five, owed him 500 denarii, that's like two years' wages, and the other 50, that's like two months' wages. And when he had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. This is what happens at my house. I mean, my wife is, huh, my wife is not speaking to me. That's what's going on now. Okay. Um. Sake of the gospel. Anyway, where where were we? Okay. Uh, Kiss my feet, blah, blah. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Consider the woman in this story. She's a prostitute. She owns this expensive jar of perfume that may enable her to get out of this awful life that she's in. Maybe she could move to another town. Maybe she could be married. Maybe she could have a more normal life. But instead of holding tightly to this bottle of valuable perfume, she just pours it out on Jesus' feet. She gives everything to Jesus. She pours out all hope that she had for the future uh, right at his feet, somehow trusting that just coming into a relationship with him, it's all going to work out. Notice the contrast. Simon, a Pharisee, very religious man, man interested in the things of God, he invited Jesus to his house. He didn't hate Jesus. 
He wanted to have some association with Jesus. He invited him over. Yet at the end of the evening, Jesus says to the woman, not to Simon, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A woman is saved. Simon is apparently not. And Simon might well be one of those who awake in eternity and say, Lord, I had you over to my house. I tithed. I fasted. I read the Bible. What more do you want from me? To which Jesus will say, you refuse to see the enormity of your sin. And so you love me little. Yet your house guest, this woman, she saw the enormity of her sin. She loves me much. She gave me everything. That's all I ask of anyone, Simon. Jesus would say, everything, everything. If, God forbid, you find yourself standing in the middle of a forest fire, you'll quickly discover that that fire doesn't want to consume just a little bit of you. That fire wants to consume all of you. And the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. He doesn't want to be an additive or supplement to your life. He wants all of you. He wants everything. Narrow gate is an all-or-nothing proposition. Entering the narrow gate speaks of an unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. Jesus, I have sinned terribly against you. You hung on a cross to, to prevent me from facing a fate that is far worse than death. I lay down all that I hold dear. I worship at your feet. I give you all. Entering the narrow gate requires that kind of unconditional surrender. But walking the narrow road is going to also require a daily surrender. First, the daily surrender of control of our life. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Second, that narrow road requires a daily surrender of our desires. Galatians 5.24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And finally, that narrow road requires the daily surrender of pride, Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's impossible to live this narrow road life on your own strength. And, and God never asks you to do that, not on your own strength. He asks you, he commands you to make a full and complete surrender to him. He commands you to enter through that narrow gate. That's something you must do. But having done that, Jesus then walks with you down that narrow road. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll empower you as you seek to obey him and live on that narrow road. So you've got to do that first part. You've got to first surrender to him. But really that second part, it's going to largely be him. And if you know somebody that's been walking with the Lord a lot of years, that's exactly what they're going to tell you. <laughs> I don't know how I got through. Jesus carried me through. And I'm going to pray in a minute. After I finish praying, I'm going to invite you to pray with me if you choose to. And uh, this is going to be a prayer by which we choose to enter through that narrow road. Once and for all, enter that narrow road that leads to life. Now, maybe you've prayed that prayer previously, or maybe you've never prayed that prayer. But, you know, if you prayed that previously, you may realize now, you know, it, I, there's, there's always been something that I've held back. Uh, there's something lacking. I haven't given Jesus everything. You realize there's areas of your life that you've held dear, iniquities and idolatries. Uh, you've not been willing to give those things to Jesus. Jesus, by his spirit, is already speaking to your heart. He's going, today is the day. Today's the day for you to enter through that narrow gate, to trust me, <clears throat> wholeheartedly surrender to me, lay everything down. Uh, and so if you're not absolutely certain 
you're on that narrow road, I would just encourage you, join in this prayer. I'm going to pray first, and I'll tell you when. Then join in this prayer, and, and Jesus will honor that prayer, and then he's going to bless your life. He, he's going to transform your life. You know, like, like Brian said, nobody ever regrets. I, I don't know a single story of somebody saying, gave my life to Jesus. It was all down the toilet. After that. No, I've never, I've never heard that. I, I, you know, I, I've been down the toilet, but, but not with Jesus, you know. So anyway, let, let me pray, and then I'll, I'll, well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've done. You, you made the way. You provided the one and only way for salvation, heaven, forgiveness of sin, blessing, we thank you, Jesus, that you made that possible. We pray by your spirit, you've been speaking, and you're speaking right now to hearts here. And this is a matter of the will. You don't force anybody to do anything. You gave us a free will, but I pray by your spirit, you would speak to hearts now. And I pray that those that feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, that know that God is speaking to them, know that they need to do this. Lord, nothing would hold them back. They wouldn't worry about what somebody else thinks. They would only worry about what you think. They want what you have, I pray. Each of us would want what you have, that intimacy with God, the Holy Spirit living in us, forgiveness of every sin, past, present, and future, a clean slate, a new beginning, salvation, heaven, your blessing on on our lives, God. So we ask that you would speak to each of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I can lead you in a prayer. And if it's your desire to be forgiven of your sin, to wholeheartedly surrender yourself to Jesus, you might have prayed a prayer like this before, but you've somewhere along the line, so, you know, I don't think I really, really surrendered. Then today's your day. We're going to pray. Everybody's head's going to be bowed while we do that. But I'm going to ask you to pray out loud. And, uh, and so I'm going to pray it because I need to pray it. And maybe some other people here will too. So let's bow our heads. Pete after me. Father in heaven, I surrender all to you. I admit I'm a sinner. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. Cleanse me now. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me heaven. Thank you for giving me yourself. Your Holy Spirit living in me. I ask you to lead me, guide me, bless me, Every day of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, and, uh, you know, something to consider, and Brian mentioned this before service to me, but um, if you've never prayed that prayer before, being baptized today would be a fabulous thing. You're obeying God. You're going public with this decision you've made. But, you know, even if you've, and I think Brian would bear witness, I didn't ask him this specifically, but... You know, even if you previously sort of surrendered to God, but it wasn't full and complete, and today it is, I'd say get baptized today. There's no, I don't see anything in Scripture that says, only baptize once. You know, no, I'd, I'd say you can do that. People go, they get baptized in the Jordan River. I'd say do it again today. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.